Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask that your word would, as Bill read today, not return to you void, that as you send out your word, Lord, that as you use the words of scripture through the Holy Spirit, penned by many different people over many different years, all collectively and cohesively speaking to the good news that Christ would come and redeem a fallen mankind, that we as broken and sinful people deserving of hell, deserving of no mercy, yet having been shown mercy by you through Christ, would one day have the opportunity to be a redeemed people. Lord, you have redeemed us for your name's sake, that you might receive the praise, that we might offer to you our devotion, our generosity, that we might offer good works to those around us, that your name again might be praised. Lord, we thank you that we have been called according to your name and according to Christ. We ask that we would be made into his likeness, that one day when our spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day. Lord, one day when the trumpet sounds that we rise out of the grave, the bodily resurrection, as Christ was bodily resurrected, so too we shall be one day. Lord, that as we are resurrected to join our souls immortal, Lord, that that would be the hope that we have, that our lives would not consist of what we see and what we can touch the tangible, but that we would recognize that eternity begins the times that we die. Lord, that our hope is not found on earth, our hope is in you, that our hope is through Christ, that the Spirit confirms and seals that guaranteed hope. But Lord, while we're here, we pray that we would be generous people, that we would be able to say, I've done everything I can that the name of God and that the name of Christ might be lifted up. Lord, we pray that we would lift up the name of Christ as he was lifted up on the cross for all mankind to see as the sacrifice that he gave himself for us was for all to see. May we continue to do that. May we continue to lift up the name of Christ for all to see that there's a hope beyond earth, that there's a hope beyond our trials, that there's a hope beyond our afflictions and our persecutions. There's a hope that comes only through knowing Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to be kind of scattered all around. So I'm going to read some verses. You've got some verses in your outline. Some will be on the screen. If I miss a verse and you're like, I really wanted to know that verse, just send me an email or call the office because I've got a lot of notes that are kind of going in all different directions. So I wanted to start, though, with the churches in Macedonia. So at the time of Paul's writing in the New Testament, they have regions that are most often described in the New Testament. So we've got these churches in Macedonia, which included the cities of Thessalonica, Philippi, most likely Berea. So we get the letters that Paul wrote to the, to the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. We get the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. We get a real small section in Acts 17 about the Bereans. 
and they composed what we mostly consider this region of Macedonia. That's important because much of what we're going to look at today is Paul talking about the Macedonian churches and the Macedonian believers. So when Paul's talking about the Macedonian churches and the Macedonian people, we can consider that the letters to the Thessalonians, the Philippians, and what we know of the Bereans. These churches were in a very poor area, and they were new believers that were experiencing a lot of persecution. So not only were they new believers experienced persecution, they were in poor areas, and they didn't have a lot of support. In contrast to that, south of them was the Corinthians, the city of Corinth, was a wealthy port, it had a lot of money, and the believers in Corinth had much different struggles than the believers in the Macedonian region. Corinth had a lot of different people that were coming and going. There was much more religious freedom. There was money, there was work. Corinth had it all. And the Macedonian churches had none of it. So I want to read a couple parts out of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Philippians that kind of describe what Paul is telling and explaining to the Thessalonians, the Philippians, and the Bereans about what he knows of their state. So this comes out of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Paul says that they are to be imitators of him as he is of the Lord in spite of severe persecution. He also said that when he himself, Paul, had traveled to Philippi, he had suffered and was treated outrageously. He says that the people of Thessalonica have suffered the same things in their country that Paul had experienced from the Jews in Jerusalem. In the same way that they're being persecuted, the Christians in Jerusalem had also been persecuted, which we know the Jews killed Christ. The Jews were attacking and persecuting the Christians all throughout Jerusalem. Paul continues, he says, We knew and we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. He says that, you know, in regard to the perseverance, he said, Stand firm in your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. Paul says that when he had gone to Macedonia, that they had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside and fears on the inside. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, we need to contend together for the gospel, not being frightened by your opponents, but believing in Christ and also suffering for him. The, the letters to first, the first and second Thessalonians and Philippians are very short letters, and they contain a lot of talk about persecution, a lot of the problems that the Macedonian churches experienced. Paul goes on in second Thessalonians with this idea that they have suffered and are suffering so much that he wants to provide them hope, but he can't provide them hope as we would expect it to be. Paul's hope for them is not that the persecution is going to get better. This is Paul's hope for them in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul's hope was not that those who have died, those who have been persecuted, those who have been put to death, the hope is not that they will be here, that the persecution will stop, that everything will get better, but the hope is that you don't grieve that you don't mourn like everybody else because the hope that we have is that one day this will be better. One day the persecution ends and you have eternal hope. Their suffering and persecution was so great that the only hope Paul could offer them was eternity. Paul could do nothing for their current state, nothing for who they were, what they were doing, what they were going through. The hope was one day you'll die and you will be with the Lord forever. That was the only hope that Paul could give them. Now this is important because this is the context of generosity. These are the churches that we're going to look at that express generosity, Paul says, beyond what they could. So let's look at 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and during this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem had been cut off from their families. They'd been cut off from most of what they know because they've, in the Jerusalem culture of Orthodox Judaism, being a Christian and following Jesus was heresy. So these Christians are heretics. They've been cut off and they've been kicked out of most of regular life. And yet they are suffering other churches around the known world are trying to help the Jerusalem Christians. So picking up in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability— of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So that first verse, Paul says, we want you to know that God has given these Macedonian churches, these persecuted, afflicted churches, he's given them grace. Okay, grace is simply a kindness that comes from God. So their grace of God, the kindness that God has given them in verse 1, is defined in verses 2 through 4. God has given them this kindness. During an extreme or severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The kindness that God gave these Macedonian churches was a love for other people. Even in their affliction, even in their extreme poverty, they were given the grace of God, which was a kindness that they still saw and cared about other people. And I don't know what Paul means when he says, I can testify in verse 3, according to their own ability and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry beyond their ability. Whatever Paul means by that is obviously extreme in its own right. Extreme poverty produced extreme generosity. Beyond what they were capable of giving, they gave. 
It was a grace of God. It was a kindness that God extended to these Macedonian churches. They were generous in extreme poverty. Because generosity is not an amount. Generosity is a condition of the heart. Generosity, as seen by the Macedonian churches, has nothing to do with numbers. It has everything to do with the heart of generosity. In the Old Testament, when God gave his people a command to tithe, he told them, you'll bring a tenth of everything into the temple. You'll give it to the temple for God's purposes. The Levites would come, they would administer the temple, they would do what they needed to do, they would bring sacrifices, they would bring worship to God. The people of God were to bring a tenth, 10% of everything to give to the Levites who would take care of all of the worship of God. Okay, that's an outward, an external motivation for giving. That's an, an act that they were supposed to do. That's what God had called them to do. 10% is easy for rich people. If you're rich, 10% is easy. If you have abundance, 10% is easy. If you have nothing, 10% is difficult. I was reading the story about, I don't remember which country it was, but it was a South African country that was deconstructing old ships. So they would bring these old tanker ships and they would start recycling the metal. They would just with angle grinders, climb up and start cutting out sections and hauling it down so that they could take the steel and melt it down. There was jobs for the widows and for those over 63, women over 63 in this culture, that they would wade out into the ocean because they, they didn't have docks, they didn't have harbors, they literally just pulled these boats up and ran them aground and started cutting. So these widows and these women over 63 who couldn't otherwise work would take a magnet out into the water and they would just start dipping the magnet and pulling off iron and steel shavings that they could take and try to recycle. A good day, they would earn an equivalent of four cups of rice after working 12 hours. That's extreme poverty. That makes it hard to give 10%. So the Old Testament required 10% from everybody, and even across the board, 10%. That's the external act. By the time we get to the New Testament, there's no more command about 10%. There's no more tithe. The temple of God now is where the Holy Spirit resides. So we have this transfer of this Old Testament requirement, you have to do this, to the New Testament, which says you should want to do this. We want you, Paul's telling the Macedonian churches and telling the churches in Achaia, we want you to be generous. Paul tries to dissuade the Macedonian churches from giving. And they begged him for the privilege. Can you imagine Paul saying, man, you guys are poor. You're literally scraping iron filings to try to get some rice to eat today. And they're like, yeah, we want to give. Paul's like, please stop. You are more poor than the people in Jerusalem. Paul, you gotta let us give. You have to let us participate in this. Begging Paul that they can participate with their generosity. That's the picture that comes into the New Testament. During the Great Depression, the 
West African country of Cameroon heard that American people were starving to death during the Great Depression. So some churches in this poor African country got together and they talked to their local mission organization and said, we want to send money to America to help the poor starving people. So they said, great. So these churches got together. They collected the money from these, this region of churches. They gave it to their organization and the organization mailed it to somebody in America that they could distribute for food. These churches collected $3.77 to send to poor, starving Americans. Out of their generosity, they collected what they had. It was insignificant, probably not worth the time, probably not worth the stamp, probably not even worth it to get the money here and try to distribute it. But generosity is not about the amount, it's about the heart. It's a condition of the heart that says, I don't know if this is a lot or little. I don't care if this is a lot or little. I don't care if this is helpful or not because it's what God has given me in my heart that I need to do for me to be obedient. We see that same thing in Mark chapter 12. It's the widow who goes and gives two little coins. But in Mark chapter 12, about verse 41, it says that Jesus is watching how they give. Jesus is not watching how much they give, but he's watching how they give. And rich people come and they make a big scene and they're giving lots of money and they're making it about themselves. And then this poor widow comes and gives everything that she has. And Jesus says, she gave more than all of them. She gave out of her generosity, not out of her wealth. Generosity is a condition of the heart. As we see with these Macedonian churches, they continued to give out of their heart. Most often when we think of generosity, we think about finances. We think about money, who needs it, how we can give it, where it needs to go. But generosity is so much more than just money. Generosity spans, I counted about two dozen different ways to be generous and I kind of narrowed some of them down. So I wanted to give you about seven different ways that we can be generous, and only one of them is financial. So the first one I wanted to start with is being generous with our encouragement. Generosity is more than money, and we can be generous with our encouragement. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works to consider the word means to watch to observe to look at and to provoke is to poke and to prod it's like the picture of a cowboy with a spur and he's kicking the horse and provoking the horse spurring the horse toward love and good works it also is the same word that means to incite so you can incite a rebellion or incite a riot. You know, you would go and you'd try to stir people up emotionally and try to get them all on the same page so that they're willing to go and do something. That's what Paul is saying. Watch people and incite them to do good works. Incite them to be loving and doing good works. 
When I thought of this, I thought of Barnabas, who is called the son of encouragement. In uh, the end of Acts chapter 4, Barnabas, it says his name was actually Joseph. He was a Levite. He was from Cyprus. And they gave him the name, the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was literally, to them, named son of encouragement as if his father was encouragement itself. The personification of encouragement had a son, and here he is right before us. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And it made me wonder, what would my name be? If you guys all got together and like, all right, we're not going to call him Brandon anymore. We're going to call him what? And I was kind of worried, you know, because I don't know. And I thought, what would we call you? What would we call you if we said, hey, your name's not Ralph anymore, right? Your name's not Doug. Your name's not Mary. We're going to choose a new name for you. And we all got together and we like took a tally. We wrote down some attributes. I think most of us would have a good name. We would look and we'd say, you are... And we would have good names for one another. We'd have son of encouragement. We'd have hard worker. We'd have committed Christian. We'd have evangelist. Your name's not Dave anymore because you're always telling people about the Lord, so we're going to call you son of evangelism. We would have names for one another like they did for Barnabas. There's lots of Josephs out there, so we're giving you a name that's more descriptive. What would our names be? And then secondly, what would you want your name to be? How do you see yourself and how do you attribute those things to yourself? If you could pick a descriptive name of who you want to be, what would it be? Would you be son of encouragement? Would you be something? What would your name be if you could choose who you were? I've had a lot of people in my life that have been Barnabas, that they've been encouraging to me. In the last couple of months, I, I talked to a younger couple and I was asking them about what does your home Bible study look like? You know, you have kids. What's it going to look like when you sit down together and you talk about the Bible and you read the Bible? What does that process actually look like? And how did you come to that? Or how will you come to that? What is that going to be? And they said, well, dad always sat down with us and we'd sit down, we'd just read a chapter, we'd talk about it. What does it say? What do you hear God telling you to do? How does it make you feel? I was like, okay, well, how often does that happen? Every night. That's our pattern. Every night we sit down together and sometimes it's an hour or longer. And we just sit and we read about the Bible and we talk about it. I text that guy, I was like, Good job. You did really well in demonstrating and modeling this that other people can now see what it means to teach their children, to teach one another, to encourage one another toward love and good works. We have examples of what it means to encourage. We've all been encouraged, and we've all been encouraging. And that's what the author of Hebrews says, is we should be watching we should be observing and we should be noticing when someone offers something encouraging, we should tell them, hey, good job bringing your kids to church today. 
they're always so excited to see me. That's fun. I like when kids are happy to be at church. Thank you for being committed to be here every day. It's hard when your spouse doesn't want to come, I'm sure. But you're committed every week. We can encourage one another with the faithful things that we see in each other. And that's what Paul says, to spur, provoke, and incite one another to do good things, to keep pressing forward. A man, man named Henry Drummond says, you will find that the people who influence you are the people who believe in you. If someone believes in you, they're on your side, they're trying to be that person of encouragement, that person has influence in your life. So not only do we want to be the son of encouragement, we want to have influence in other people's lives that we can encourage them as well. Generosity is not just money. We can be generous with our encouragement to others. And it doesn't cost us anything. Literally does not cost you anything to make a phone call, to make a text. Even a text used to cost 10 cents. Today, won't even cost you that. You can encourage someone at no cost, and it's something that they will probably remember for the rest of their lives. So encourage someone, being known as someone who is encouraging, being generous with our encouragement to other believers. Secondly, ways that we can be generous is being generous with your home. If your house is warm, your kids are well-fed, you've got a spot at the table that you can set up an extra chair or two, invite someone over. Hey, you want to come over for dinner on Tuesday? Hey, we're barbecuing. Do you want to come over and have your kids play in the backyard? Inviting someone over is an easy thing to do. It shows hospitality, and it's a very practical way that we can love one another. When you're with somebody and you're sitting in your home, you have opportunities to be encouraging. You have opportunities to pray for one another, to get to know other people, so you know how you can encourage them, how you can love them. It's what community groups are all about. If you've got a home that can hold a couple people, host a community group. Hey, you guys want to come over? We're going to meet on Thursday night at 6 o'clock. Maybe we have dinner. Maybe we have dessert. Maybe we just get together at 6 and... Read the Bible, we're going to pray together. Being together, being hospitable to one another. I think it's also a great opportunity to invite your neighbors because non-Christian people don't generally invite people into their homes anymore. That's just not a cultural thing that we do anymore. Anytime we can stand out as Christians and say, I'm different in this way, is a good thing. Last night, I don't even know if my wife saw it last night, but she got a, a text message at like 8 o'clock, and I don't think she even had her phone until this morning, but she got a text at like 8 o'clock, and it said, hey, I know it's late. Do you want to come over and have some tea with me? It's like, that is hospitality. That's being generous with your home and with your time and with your ability to just say, hey, if you're not doing anything, let's just get together for a few minutes. And like I said, she didn't go because she probably didn't see it until this morning. But to me, the gesture was probably more important than the actual whether it happened or not. Someone cared about her and said, do you want to get together? A great example of what it means to be generous. I was thinking of inviting someone over for dinner, and I was in my mind like, what stops people from wanting to do that? 
And I was thinking of, you've probably heard FOMO, fear of missing out, the acronym F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. But I think when it comes to hospitality, it's FODO, fear of dishes out. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't want to invite someone because I got a sink full of dishes, I got a pile of laundry, or like fear of wild kids, or man, my house is a mess, my kids are a mess, we need a bath, or whatever. There's lots of reasons that we say, I can't because of. But we all have that house. We all have dishes in the sink. We all have a pile of laundry. The difference is you're inviting someone over and they feel more comfortable because they're not looking at your perfection and saying, I'll never be like that. They have no dishes in the sink. Every piece of laundry is washed and clean and put away. You're just bringing someone over and saying, this is life. We're real people just like you're real people. So come over and spend some time with us. It's okay if you have dishes out. So ask yourself, am I too private? Am I willing to let someone come over? Am I engaging with people and being hospitable to them? Okay, so being generous with your possessions, the third one. Throughout the Bible, we see this as a principle that generosity is not an amount, it's a condition of the heart. But there's lots of talk in the Bible about being generous with your finances. Give generously, harvest generously. It's what Jerry read. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you'll reap generously. Proverbs says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and your barns will overflow. Give and it will be given to you. The same measure you give will, that you use to give will be used to give back to you. So if you're willing to give with a teaspoon, you should expect that God's willing to give to you with a teaspoon. The measure that you use to be generous is the measure that God will use to be generous to you. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, says, don't rob God. And the people say, how are we robbing God? God says, by not giving. You're robbing me of what I've already given you. And God says, test me and see. Try me. Right? Will I not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out beyond measure? Proverbs also says, a generous man becomes rich. So I was, uh, I was thinking about this passage, and imagine that someone in your family has a beach house, a big, beautiful beach house, and since we're in California, it's like $8 million, $10 million, this beautiful house on the beach. And one day they call, and they're like, hey, we're not going to the beach this weekend. You're like, why not? I sold the house. Like, you sold the family beach house. No, that's my beach house. I sold my beach house. You're like, but we loved going to the beach house. Were you going to buy a lake house with a boat and other stuff? Like, no, I gave it all to the church. You're like, you sold the beach house and gave it to the church? And that's what I think Barnabas' family probably said. Because Barnabas had a house on a beautiful island Cyprus was a beautiful island. It's like the classic Greek island where there's like white houses that are like going down right to the edge of the sea and there's crystal clear waters. Three times more people come to Cyprus every year to vacation there than actually live there. There's like only like 10 countries on earth that more people go to visit than actually live there. 
and Cyprus is one of them. A beautiful place, that's where Barnabas had land. And Barnabas sold the land and gave it to the church because he saw a need. He said, I can meet that need. Why not me? I can do that. So Barnabas sold his, maybe not a beach house, Barnabas sold what he had and brought it to the church in an effort to be generous. Can I meet that need? I think it's interesting in, uh, I, I don't think I have this in my notes, but in Acts chapter 4, the very end of Acts chapter 4, is the, the story of Barnabas, that he was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. He sells the house, brings it, gives it to the apostles to do with whatever they decide is best. The very next chapter starts with, like the very next verse starts with Ananias and Sapphira, who do the exact same thing. Hey, we've got something, we sold it, there you go. But Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much they gave. It's not the whole thing, it's just part of it. But they lie and say, we gave the whole thing, like Barnabas, right? Barnabas is awesome, son of encouragement. What's my new name gonna be? They're like, well, yours is gonna be written on a tombstone because you lied to the Holy Spirit. The difference right there between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira is a contrast. Acts 5.1 starts with, but. Here's Barnabas, gave the money, did the right thing, was generous, but Ananias and Sapphira both end up dead because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. They were not generous from the heart. They were not trying to live this truly generous life they were just trying to get praise from it. They just wanted people to think highly of them instead of be respectable people. Giving generously to the Lord asks, can I meet this need? Some needs are small, some needs are large. Can I meet this need? Is there a need that I can try to meet? I want to be generous. What does that look like for me? All right, next. Being generous with your time. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this vision of a man named Cornelius, and he goes to Cornelius. He tells Cornelius all about the gospel and about Jesus, and Cornelius is already a devoted man who's giving and trying to do what he knows to do. And then Peter comes and tells him about Jesus and fills in the missing gaps that Cornelius doesn't know. And then Peter stays with him for a few days. Peter is really important to the church at this time. The church is brand new. Peter's one of the few people that have walked with Jesus and know everything that the church needs to be. And Peter goes and spends time with one guy and his family, willing to be generous with his time in a situation that I would probably say, no, you're more valuable with the new church. The whole new church needs to know what to do. And Peter says, but this guy is important. This family is important. When, when one of my daughters was real young, she was super colicky and cried and screamed all the time for like the first three months of her life. And my wife had been home and she'd been just enduring this day after day, and she was feeling guilty because she hadn't been able to do anything with the other kids or see them doing stuff at Awana. And then came the Awana Grand Prix, and that's where the kids race their cars in here, and they have a, a lot of fun. And so she said, I want to go to the Grand Prix, and I was, I think, giving the gospel message or emceeing the event, so I couldn't really help with 
a screaming baby and a microphone, but she wanted to come. So she brought the baby, and she just screamed the whole time like she did the rest of her life. Wherever she was, if she was awake, she was screaming. And so she was, she was back in room seven, the baby screaming. And so I went to her and said, let me hold that baby. Let me take her to the nursery. Let me rock her for you. And took the screaming baby to the nursery. I don't think she stopped screaming. I think she just was willing to hold a screaming baby for the next hour. And from then on, every time she saw my wife, she said, hey, let me take the baby. Let me go rock her. And a little bit of time, that was probably six years ago. I still think about that. How someone just taking a little bit of time, a little bit of care, a little bit of concern, told me, I love you. I love your wife. I love your family. I love that little screaming baby. Because there's times where you're like, I do not love that little screaming baby right now. That baby is hard to love right now. But you still love that baby. But for other people to come and say, I will love you and that little baby. And it only took a little bit of time. So how can I use my time to help and love someone else? We're going to skip spiritual gifts there. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. talks a lot about spiritual gifts. 12, uh, about 4 through 7 is a great picture of how to use our spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. It's in the context of loving each other and loving the church, using our spiritual gifts. Uh, The next one, being generous with our good works. Titus says, he gave himself for us. That is, Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. This is one of Paul's pastoral letters, giving to Titus what it means to care for and love the church. And like five different times he says, do good works, be engaged in good works, be devoted to good works, teach them to love good works. Our good works go hand in hand with the good news. We can take our good works and we can use those as a bridge to get to the good news. A few years ago, and and all these stories is like, they bring back these like flood of emotions. And a few years ago, we were out doing homeless ministry and a friend was like, hey, I want to feed the homeless. Like there's, we got parks around, let's, let's do something. I was like, okay, let's do it. You set it up and we'll do it. So we got hot dogs and hamburgers, like went out to the park for a few different weeks and we're feeding the homeless. And one Saturday we were at Rotary Park and I got there a few minutes late and they were already out talking to the, some of the homeless people that were there. And I look at my friend and I'm like, hey, you don't have shoes on. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I didn't need them. I was like, okay, that's weird. It's not necessarily a park that you want to go barefoot in. And then as we were feeding and cooking the hot dogs, I recognize his shoes on someone else. He had got there, asked this homeless man, hey, what size do you wear? Hey, these will fit. Unlaced his shoes, put them on the homeless man, and didn't even say anything about it. Our good works are a bridge to the good news. 
if we can do something for someone that allows us to also give them the good news, Christ has redeemed us from our lawlessness to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works that we strive for and want to do good works. The last one is being generous when it's difficult. You know, back to those Macedonian churches. They had nothing, and they gave more than they had. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I can testify that, verse 3, according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. That's what Paul had hoped, is that they would want that, but not as they had hoped. Look at this next verse. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Their generosity did not start with just, here's our money. They had already given themselves to the Lord. Generosity has to start with, they first gave themselves to the Lord. If we don't give ourselves to the Lord, every act of generosity we have is just something philanthropic. We're just trying to give so that someone will survive or so that we will feel good about it. But as we first give ourselves to the Lord, our good works are for the Lord. That's why the Macedonian churches here gave, because they had already given themselves to the work of the Lord. They had already said, I'm committed to the Lord. Whatever may come, however that may look, wherever we may go, whatever we may have, I'm committed to affliction, I'm committed to persecution, I'm committed to generosity, I'm committed to evangelism, because I'm already first committed to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. That's where it has to start. We had talked about koinonia a couple weeks ago, that idea of a God-given fellowship, that you can't have true spirit-filled and spirit-led fellowship without having the Spirit of God, without having true salvation. You can't have this koinonia fellowship. And I read all of the verses when we talked about koinonia, except for two. And I want to show you the two that I chose not to read so that I could read them today. The first is 2 Corinthians. Paul's still talking about the Macedonian churches. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 and 13. Paul's still going here with the same giving to Jerusalem. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So you're giving for the needs, for the ministry of this service, but it's also causing people to give thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. The word sharing is koinonia, that we have fellowship, a special and unique God-given fellowship when we generously share with someone we've never met. When we go out of our way to meet the needs of another Christian person that lives in a city far away, that 
has no idea who we are, we have no idea who they are, that is the same fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit. The second one, in Romans 15, Paul is looking back and he's saying, now, verse, chapter 15, verse 25, right now I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. He has the money and now he's going to Jerusalem because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a koinonia. They were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Macedonia had nothing, but they gave it all. The Corinthians, who had everything, heard what Paul was saying. Paul's telling them, don't be shamed to me and don't shame yourselves. Give what you know you can give. You told me you were going to give. Now Paul's holding their feet to the fire. Set aside on the first day of the week what you're going to give. You told me I'm coming to get it so we can take it to where we said we're going to take it. And they've done it. They've all done it. Macedonian and the Achaean churches were pleased to make a contribution. There's a lot of words for giving that Paul could use, but this is koinonia. This is fellowship to make this contribution. The Macedonian churches had nothing. Being generous was difficult for them. And they chose by their fellowship with one another and their fellowship with the churches in Jerusalem to give. That is generosity. Choosing to say, I will give. Whether it's monetary, whether it's time, whether it's something else, because generosity is a condition of the heart. It's a condition that's brought about by God for God's people, for evangelism, to do good works so that we might tell people about the love Christ has for them. So that we may tell one another, I'm trying to love you like Christ loves you. John Bunyan said this, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. You've not lived today until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. That's generosity. I'm giving with no expectation, not even praise, not even a pat on the back, not even maybe somebody will know this. I'm giving for no other reason except for God has called me to be generous. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, that we know that you've called us to be generous, that we might be generous people. Lord, we thank you for a church that loves you, a church that is generous, is caring about you, committed to you, Lord, may we be a generous people, not for our own good, but for the good of churches around us, for the good of other churches in Madeira, for the good of our partners around the world and churches around the world, everywhere the Gideons go, our missionaries go. Lord, may you continue to make us a generous church who doesn't just see the people inside the walls, but outside the walls. The Christians around the world, the unbelievers around the world, that we would seek to reach them with the good news that Christ has come, that Christ has offered a way of redemption, a way of salvation, and through our good works that we might bridge that to the good news. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.